This is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Kelly James, who was brought up in a military family, but has always been drawn to agriculture. Kelly received a bachelor's degree in Spanish from the University of Kentucky and a master's degree in international development from American University. Kelly started her own career with commodity banks in Latin America on risk management and income diversity strategies. In 2009, she was appointed by President Barack Obama as the White House Fellow and was the Crane Chicago Business Magazine's 40 Under 40 Rising Leader. Kelly also spent five years working for the Chicago Climate Exchange and was the co-founder of Exchangery. Kelly now serves as the CEO of Macaros. With that, I'd like to welcome Kelly to the show. Thanks, Jordan. Appreciate the introduction and looking forward to talking with you and your listeners. I appreciate you uh, getting on the show with me. I've got a lot I want to learn from you. Let's just start the podcast off. Something really interesting. I read about you, you being appointed by President Barack Obama as a White House fellow at only 33 years old. You were among only 15 men and women to be appointed, right? Yeah, it's um, it's a program that usually about about 15 people, give or take, each year are appointed, and um, the idea is that you go for a year to to Washington D.C. work for the administration. It's it's been around for about 50 years, so across those 50 years, it's been you know Democrats, Republicans um, that you're that uh, fellows are working for, and you never know what you're going to end up doing. Uh, it just all depends. My year happened to be the year of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, so I spent a lot of time working on the administration's response to that. But it's you know you never know what you'll be called to uh, to do. Is this something you apply to do, or do you get picked to do? Yeah, you apply to it. So every year they've got an, an application, and it's a long application. It's you know a couple of essays, and they're looking at your professional record. Uh, you write a few essays. It's almost like a college application. And then they winnow down those electronic applications to a uh, regional process where you go to one of about six or seven uh, places in the country for a, for a day-long interview uh, in person. And then if you make it out of the regions, you know, they, they, they winnow it down to about 30 people who go to Washington, D.C. for three days' worth of interviewing with a whole um, range of, you know, what's called the President's uh, Commission. And it's about uh, 20 or 30 people that are handpicked by the, the President to select the final, um, the final 15. So it's a, it's a lengthy process, uh, for sure. The reason I wanted to do it was because, you know, I had never worked at fed, in federal government, uh, at least, you know, not at that level. I've been most of my experience with the private sector, except for maybe one internship I had in, in grad school. And, um, you know, a lot of times, I think, in, especially in this current age, politics is, is a blood sport, and politics is one thing, but governance is something else. And for me, it was a chance to kind of look at governance and, you know, what thing, you know, what, how, how does the government, you know, influence uh, our daily lives, everything from disaster response to water quality to national security, uh, the things that often are not in the headlines uh, but are, are really important uh, functions nonetheless. Did you work with Barack Obama personally while you were in that position? Um, did meet with him several times, but it's not uh, – the White House is a big place, and we were not, you know, senior advisors, at least I was not. I did have one classmate who was a senior advisor to Joe Biden, uh, two classmates actually, so they worked with him on a fairly regular basis. I tended to work with, um, uh, although there were some briefings, you know, in the White House, I tended to work with their, his economic counsel, so I was, you know, I was at least one or two steps away from the president for the most part, um, and then multiple cabinet secretaries, so. That's really cool. Sounds like an awesome opportunity. You were uh, raised in a military family growing up, I read. 
I just wanted to know some advantages you thought you had being raised in a military family that gives you an gives you an edge over your competitors today. Like, what did what did you learn from that whole experience? Yeah, well, you know, that's maybe an appropriate question the day after Veterans Day. Um, my father went to West Point, had a 10-year career in the infantry before then getting out, becoming an Army doctor, and coming back in for another 15 years as an Army doc. Um, it's just, you know, I don't know if it, I would say edge over competitors. I would just say that I'm grateful for the perspective that being raised in a military family and part of that community gave me. So, you know, very mission-oriented, um, very, you know, close-knit, tight community. I think growing up in the Army, you know, you just learn to uh, – to not just accept change but embrace it. Um, you know, my, my hometown is, is, is everywhere, and, you know, so are, you know, my friends are everywhere too, and so being able to go to a new situation and feel comfortable in a relatively short amount of time and, and really just being able to talk with everyone and, you know, understand and appreciate different perspectives, I think a lot of that came from, uh, from being part of the military community, and I, I – I see the parallels between that and being an entrepreneur, you know, every day. So, how many different cities did you live in growing up? Well, let me think. <laughs> um, the longest so far, the record that I've lived anywhere is uh, six years. But I'm hoping to break that record soon in the next year or two. And um, mostly was stateside, uh, and lived in, I believe, um, eight different places by the time I went to high school or by the time I graduated high school. Yeah, that's crazy. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't imagine moving that much, but I guess if you're doing it that much, you probably get used to it and know a lot of good people from the whole thing. I think I was right about average because I certainly had friends that moved more often than I did, um, some that had, you know, parents that did multiple overseas tours. And uh, my dad only he did one tour in Korea, uh, that was when I was so young, though, I don't really remember it. And then the rest was stateside. And then I had some friends who moved less, you know, two, three, four moves over the course of their, um, you know, childhood. So I'm, I'm right about average when it comes to military moves. <laughs> I was doing some research on you, and uh, growing up, I, I read that you wanted to ride horses professionally in the Olympics. What's, uh, what was that all about? Oh, Yeah. It's also I might I might be able to blame it on the the army army life. So one of the things that was interesting about the different army bases is that most of them, many of them, had stables, horse stables on them. And this was a kind of a leftover holdover from back when the army had uh, cavalry, as I say, cavalry that was four-legged instead of armored cow cab like they have now. And so um, it was something I could do no matter where we moved. And it was actually pretty inexpensive, too, uh, because sort of all the labor was provided by, uh, by the military families themselves. So it was an affordable, you know, fun way to stay out of trouble as a kid. And it's something I just really loved from the moment I tried it. <laughs> so my first sort of love being horses, I thought, well, maybe I can make a career out of this. I ended up, you know, taking lessons. I, I first rode Western, and, and that was because we were in uh, Fort Bliss, El Paso, Texas, when I was, you know, a kid. And then when we moved east, I actually switched to riding English and, you know, jumpers, if anyone listening is a, is a horse person. Um, and I just, you know, living in uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, uh, you know, had the opportunity to do everything from ride racehorses to uh, exercise racehorses to jumpers. And I really, you know, loved that. So I, uh, <laughs> I started. I mean, it became an, an obsession, uh, as it as it often does with horse people. Um, and I actually chose my undergrad, University of Kentucky, kind of based on my ability to continue riding uh, in, in the middle of you know horse country in the, the bluegrass. And I, um, I got a job right out of college with an Olympic rider. Her name was Margie Goldstein Angle. So it was was kind of what's known as catch riding, which is where you really do catch a ride. People will pay you to ride their their horses, and and they you know you you, you ride and you get on. You got to get to know the horse as quickly as possible, and then you compete on it. And so I was doing a lot of that, um, and uh, and really again thought this was going to be my you know my career going on forward. Well, 
I got injured riding. So um, I was not that far out of undergrad, graduated from the University of Kentucky, got this job with Margie, was on a client's horse, um, and the horse uh, flipped over on me during a competition, just went right down, and I got pinned between the horse and the ground. So <laughs> 1,200 pounds versus, uh, versus me, there was no contest. I, I, I caught the short end of the stick there, ended up breaking my back and fracturing um, several other bones and tearing up a bunch of ligaments. Anyway, long story short, I ended up, I was physical, in physical therapy, surgery, and I did actually go back to riding. <laughs> I think maybe I have a deficient sense of danger, um, but it just, I kind of never got back to the level that I was at before, and so six months into my recovery, I thought, well, I, I might need to rethink my entire career, <laughs> but I hadn't really developed a plan B. Um, so I went back to the time I was riding in Holland in the Netherlands for a Dutch trainer, went back to the U.S. and kind of taught lessons and moved back in with my parents for a few months while I was trying to figure out my next steps, and that, that eventually led me to go back to school, to, to grad school, and I kind of discovered a new love for uh, these new types of commodity markets that were developing, and then you know, the rest is, is history. But that was, that was my first career choice was, was uh, becoming a professional horse rider. You said you never had a plan B when you yeah. got injured. I just want to know, um, what, what was that whole experience like after you fell off the horse? How, how did you bounce back and decide that you were going to go and get your master's degree? What, what was the decision-making process like for you in that time? Well, first of all, I was very grateful to my parents for a couple of reasons. One is I had blithely told them that I didn't need to go to college because I was going to ride horses. And um, they sort of uh, lovingly but firmly said, nope, that's not going to happen. You are going to get a degree in something. I don't, you know, we don't care what, but something to continue your education. So that was the first thing is at least, you know, I had um, at least an educational base to fall back on. And so that was, that was helpful. Um, and then, you know, the, the second thing was, you know, sometimes in life, I think the same thing when you're an entrepreneur a lot of times or maybe even when you're a farmer, or, like this is your entire life. You haven't made, like, a plan A, B, C, D. It's like, all right, I'll figure this out, and I'm all in. And if this doesn't work out, then, you know, I'll regroup and figure out something else. So, you know, I was wholeheartedly part of the horse world, and the injury just, you know, it was a real sort of moment where I thought, I had to think, well, is this really what I want for the rest of my life? And since the answer increasingly was like, no, this is not tenable, well, you know, finding a new passion, it was, you know, at first I was, you know, you kind of get, it's not even like I had any practice really doing anything else. It was horses all the time. But, you know, I have a great belief that, you know, when people are intellectually curious and there's a whole, a whole world out there um, to kind of need, that needs your talents and your abilities, that um, something else will, um, will turn up. And I will say through a lot of prayer and soul searching, um, you know, I realized that I was really interested in, um, it really, it was not a straight line to agriculture. It was that I went back and I thought, well, I'm interested in economic development. And I'm interested in those fundamental questions of, of life, basically, you know, not philosophically necessarily, but food, water, energy, air, the, the things that without them, you know, the rest of everything else that we do doesn't, is not even possible. And so I studied international development, and that just gave me, going back to school gave me just another chance at, at just learning and, you know, stepping into wholeheartedly into a student role, and then from that, you know, you develop your, your interest from there. So that's kind of how I kind of ended up regrouping and, and finding out, you know, my next passion. So who, who first introduced you to agriculture? You said you were introduced to uh, the energy side. Then how did you get flipped over to agriculture? Yeah. Well, you know, energy and agriculture are like first cousins. So mm -hmm. um, when I um, – when I was in grad school, first of all, I had the chance to, international development is all about, well, for me, well, the angle I chose was economic development. And so because so much of the world is involved in agricultural production or along the ag supply chain, 
to me, ag was like a key strategy to help um, alleviate poverty and, and give people, you know, a, a lot of just economic opportunity. That was number one. And so I ended up working with farmers, in this case, coffee farmers, um, because they, you know, they were, I, I spoke Spanish. I should mention, I spoke Spanish already. That's what I had majored at in undergrad and, at, you know, worked in, you know, my language skills were, were fairly fluent at the time. Um, and so it was just a combination of maybe strategy and just, you know, good fortune to, to say, well, you know, I can work with some coffee farmers. I got a, a, a job as a consultant. Um, working with, with growers that it was during one of the coffee crises, kind of in the, the early 2000s when prices were super low. And, uh, you know, so I had to get so – I didn't have any background in coffee, but because I had background in economic development, ag to me was a tool to, to facilitate economic development. And that's really kind of what led me to agriculture is that potential to, you know, to, to change people's lives and, and, and for, you know, it's, it's, it employs a lot, of, a lot of people, you know, if you look worldwide. So that piqued my interest, and then it became my interest to learn as much as possible about that community that I was working with. So that's kind of what led me to ag. And then keep in mind that I had been tangential to ag for a while. I mean, on the horse farms I was at, even though that's not <laughs> traditional ag by any means, I mean, most of the farms I was on were um, – you know, I was riding, but I was also working as a, at a cow-calf operation, for example, in high school. You know, I was riding horses and also, you know, had to work on, a, you know, we, we fed the horses an alfalfa Timothy mix. And so, you know, we'd get out there and uh, check bales for, you know, quality and mold and, and that sort of thing. And so um, I wasn't really a stranger to And a lot of these were diversified operations. They, you know, they, they had horses on them, but they also had, you know, cattle, they had uh, some, one of the farms I was at in, in Kentucky was also a tobacco farm, long since gone now, but uh, so there, there, was a, there were a lot of opportunities to kind of just learn and see and watch farming operations, and so that, all, those things combined kind of led me, led me to agriculture, um, and then graduate school was an opportunity to hone that uh, in terms of the, the, what I really got interested in was ag markets, and and how farmers could get higher prices for crops by looking at some specialty markets. You know, in coffee, it was everything from shade-grown coffee to fair trade coffee. Um, it was higher quality specialty coffees that could, could command a higher price. So that it got me interested in ways that farmers could um, could connect with these unique consumer demands that were developing and actually derive some economic benefit from them. What kind, how were they connecting with them? Um, how were the farmers a, connecting? The farm, yeah, it was a combination. So especially in Latin American developing countries where there were really some real problems with uh, information flow. I mean, not everybody, most people didn't have access to the Internet um, or, you know, some way to just kind of connect with buyers. And so a lot of the work I was doing was, it was larger organizations. It was either farmers organizing themselves into co-ops so that they had some market pricing power and, and also just some technical ability and the, the ability to go talk to buyers, some resources. So sometimes the farmers, the, the growers would organize themselves realizing that these markets were out there and they were trying to take a little bit of control. Um, other times it was, you know, NGOs and other sort of development funding. So, uh, you know, that got started, like fair trade was a good example. It was a lot of buyers who realized there was an economic justice issue and, and they kind of organized and then did outreach to, to growers. So, you know, it was coming from both directions. And then, of course, as technology got more and more uh, incorporated into the supply chain, you know, now it's even easier to reach out and connect um, with uh, buyers, with sellers. So, it was a combination of, you know, those three things that, um, that helped them, uh, the two communities, meet. Uh, let's jump over to you working with Chicago Climate Exchange now. They're, so tell me if I'm right. They were the first electronic trading platform uh, trading things like carbon, sulfur, clean energy, stuff like that. Is that, is that what they did? Yeah, so CCX, as it was known, was the first place where you could trade what I'll loosely call, broadly called, environmental derivatives. So 
anything that had where there was price risk, but it was based on some sort of underlying environmental performance. And I tell people with the carbon credits, it was like inventing a currency because, you know, you can't go to the store of your, you know, your grocery store and buy carbon off the shelf. <laughs> this was in response to some potential policy. So the idea that um, climate change was occurring, that it was caused uh, in large part by human activity, and that we all, you know, companies had a role to play in reducing their use of fossil fuel um, or, on the flip side, increasing their carbon sequestration activities. And so the idea that if you put a market price on, on carbon, then people will do what they do, which is maximize returns. So um, if you're an energy company and all of a sudden there's a, there's a cost to you for uh, emitting carbon, then you're incentivized to either invest and uh, reduce the carbon that you produce or pay someone else to do it, depending on whatever is economically feasible. And the payment of someone else to do it could, could often benefit farmers. And so we had um, on the buy side were energy companies and manufacturing companies and you know, all sorts of carbon uh, transportation companies. And then on the supply side were folks like growers that were doing things like undertaking no-till production or dairy farmers that were putting in methane uh, digesters. Um, forestry companies or foresters that were planting trees. And all these had protocols. You could actually measure the carbon stored in soils as a result of, let's say, switching from till, heavy till to no-till. And we could monitor that, issue you a carbon credit that had value in the marketplace. And so at the height of those carbon markets, uh, growers were getting paid, you know, between 4 and $7 per ton of carbon that they sequestered. And depending on your soil type, you could, you could sequester a half, an eight, a half a ton to a ton of carbon per acre per year. So, you know, you do the math, four, five, six, seven dollars per acre per year, that's, that's real money um, for the grower. And, you know, a lot of times growers are doing things on farm that benefit all of us, um, whether it's biodiversity or, you know, improving water quality or carbon sequestration. And they're not, there's no, financial compensation for it, you know. It's just uh, thanks, thanks for doing that. I'm glad you're, glad you're helping us all out uh, by planting trees and taking care of your soil, but we're not really going to pay you for it. Well, these carbon markets paid farmers for doing that, and it worked really well. There was one flaw. <laughs> that was that it was all dependent on regulation. So what we started was a voluntary market where about eight – about $8 billion worth of carbon was traded the last year I was there. But it was always kind of in preparation for overarching government regulation that said, you know, we're going to impose a national program. Um, and when that didn't happen in 2010, those carbon markets kind of fell apart. So they still exist in some pockets and regions, but they never really took off the way we had hoped they would. And so CCS, as it was called, kind of wound down. It was acquired because that carbon still trades on a very limited basis, but uh, it's, never, it's never really taken off. Still, it was really good learning experience in how to set up a new market and how to, how to set up a market that has some environmental benefits attached to it. To it. So, it was a yeah, it sounds like you definitely, yeah, it sounds like you definitely uh, set up a new market. What I wanted to know on that side of things was really from you is what it was like working for a company trying to create its own space like that that no one is kind of unknown. Oh, man, it was crazy and wild and, and a, a really amazing experience. So, I mean, we were a scrappy little startup, and we were actually well-funded, but it was, you know, we raced every day to create this new market. And so I remember it just being um, a very intense activity. You know, every day was, was, was filled, um, as startups often are, right? It's, startups can be a very exciting place to work, and this was no exception. And so it was every day was all hands on deck. You know, the, to me, the pressure that comes with startups is that, you know, you're doing something totally new. And so there's no accepted path. And the, the pressure and also the excitement is that, like, if you don't do it, it's not going to get done. If you don't think of it, it's not going to get thought of. And so you just, the pressure's on to bring your A game every day and, and you know, break new, new ground. It's also exhausting. You know, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. It's a, 
the pace of, of most startups is really um, <laughs> can be hard to keep up. Um, you know, we all work hard, I'm sure, in our, our daily life, and startups are no exception. Um, so I would say, you know, sometimes that that, uh, um, that might be familiar to folks in other, you know, who are coming from other high-pressure, you know, long-hour, high-stress jobs. <laughs> you learn a lot. It's like boot camp, though. You learn a lot in a short amount of time. You know, we often talk about startup years being dog years. What one year in the startup is like seven years <laughs> another in another life, I guess. So after Chicago Climate Exchange, you went to work for, or you you're the found, co-founder of Exchangery, right? Yeah. So the other sort of cliche about startups is it may ruin you for like a normal corporate type job. And so after Mercaris, um, that's when I did the White House Fellowship, and then I came back. CCS at that point had been acquired by ICE. And my co-founder, one of the other great things that came out of working at a Chicago Climate Exchange is I met my co-founder and current business partner, Chris Dusing. So while I was doing uh, economic analysis and business development at Chicago Climate Exchange, Chris was also at CCX, and he was a soft, he's a software engineer. He built the CCX trading platform. Um, he also, we also had another trading platform that was an ICE. It was kind of white-labeled. If you had an ICE trading ID, you also had a, the ability to trade carbon and, and some of the other things we traded. And so Chris was great at technology. He's also very good at strategy. And we just had a complementary skill set. So we teamed up, and Exchangery is actually his company. So he, he had the idea of a startup that um, was basically a, basically a framework. So if anyone knows, you know, anything about the governance side of commodity exchanges, you know that there's a few big commodity exchanges, you know, Chicago, ICE, you know, a few overseas, but they're really they're kind of, they're pretty much monopolies. And so that, in that sense, they serve as gatekeepers to what actually, what types of, of futures and options contracts are actually developed. Well, Chris's idea was that why don't we build the technology framework, take care of all the regulatory side of things, and then anyone can come and launch new futures contracts, and um, they can take care of the marketing, and we'll take care of the technology. So it was a great idea. We built the platform, and then one thing happened about midway through. That is uh, Dodd-Frank passed, and that kind of blew up our business model. Um, one of the requirements of Dodd-Frank was to have a whole lot of capital on hand for risk. So it was um, rather than being sort of a lean startup that could raise not that very much money, but just, you know, launch without uh, millions and millions of dollars, it became not only do we have to raise millions of dollars, but we have to raise millions of dollars to hold an escrow, uh, effectively an escrow uh, to manage against risk. And it just kind of the numbers didn't really make sense anymore. So exchange unfortunately, didn't work um, from that standpoint, but again, it was a great learning experience. And, and part of the entrepreneurial experience is the idea that, you know, failure is something that you, you only truly fail if you don't learn anything and iterate from it. And so Exchangery was part of that iteration process of standing up a brand new commodities exchange. Yeah, it seems like you're on the forefront of coming up with new ideas, creating these new exchanges, uh, innovating products. I just want to know... Where do, you, where do you get all these ideas at? Where do you, all your best ideas come from? Oh, man. You know, it's funny because I had never thought of myself as a creative person, you know, and I think that's because I was operating under a limited definition of creativity that was more like, you know, I'm not an artist. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't uh, create new, new music or new, new uh, any type of new art, but, you know, creativity in business is just a different animal, and I think... For me, just the more experiences you can get, the, the better. I mean, the, I, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to do things like travel abroad and, you know, have that as a comparison and, um, you know, be able to work in a field, uh, you know, in some very disparate fields that, uh, you know, you can pull ideas from. So, so to me, that the good ideas come from a, a sort of natural restlessness of, like, why can't things be different or better? Um, combined with being able to draw from a whole lot of uh, different, um, you know, life experience. And so that's the, the combination of the two is where, I think, where Chris and I have gotten our, our best ideas from. So, um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but that's, 
that's the that's the feeling I have. Yeah, it makes sense. Dad tells me the same thing. It's like you just gotta oh, get really? out there and do it. And, yeah, you gotta yeah. get out there and do it. It'll it'll come. We'll figure it out. And, you know, I realize it's a privilege to do that. I think about how many people. Um, you know, I'm lucky. I, I have my family support. My my husband's always been very supportive. You know, we managed to save a little bit of money earlier in my career, which means that, you know, you take a month or two or three, you know, you go without salary for a little bit. Sometimes you have to do that when you're trying a new idea or if it fails, it means, you know, I'm not going to be homeless. And so it's it's definitely gutsy to, to start something new, but I also realize that when you have a strong support system, it lets you take those risks. So I, I appreciate that. I would never say to anyone ever, I would never say to anyone, definitely go be an entrepreneur, quit your job and do it no matter what, because it depends. You know, you got kids, you got, you know, sick, sick parents or family members. There's a lot of people I've met along the way that could be entrepreneurs, but they've got a lot of responsibilities um, and have a lot of people depending on them. And so it can be a, it can be a hard thing to make that leap. I agree. I definitely agree with that. A lot of people are in tight situations and mm-hmm. it's, uh, they just can't make it happen. I'm uh, grateful yep. I'm in one. I can try some stuff right now and maybe get something to get going and work, really take off with it. It makes a difference. Definitely does. Uh, I really wanted to pick your brain. Uh, I know you got a big background on organics and stuff you're doing now, but we were sitting around the lunch table today talking about, we were talking about whole foods and stuff. and. If organics are going to be in uh, feed eventually, or maybe we're going to start growing organic corn for ethanol. But one guy brought up, how, how, does, how do you even know when you're going to the store it's even organic? How can a consumer just rely on the term organic? Yeah, it's a good question and a timely one because I will say, like, in the last year, a year and a half, it's been brought fairly out into the open. Well, anytime you have people involved, I figure, and if human beings are involved, there's always the potential for fraud. It's, it's what we seem to do as the, as the human species. Um, and with organic prices for commodities so much higher than conventional, you know, there's your incentive. And if you can get $9 for corn versus $3, you know, that, that, that's enough for some people to say, well, let me try and, like, game the system. So I think that... Um, you know, a couple things. One is that, you know, organic is a, is a consumer-facing label that, that is it's regulated by USDA, and it means that the, everything in the supply chain, all the way from ag production to the way it's, the, the product has been handled, um, falls under a set of regulations and, and guidelines. And those regulations for the farmers out there listening, uh, for the growers, it means, you know, no chemical pesticides, no chemical fertilizers, that's a lot of times the shorthand for it, but it also implies a bunch of other practices like, you know, building your soils through rotations and, you know, managing soil loss and having a plan to improve, you know, water use. So there's a lot that goes with it that, that you can't really test for and is not visible to the consumer, which means that there's some trust there involved. There's trust that, you know, the entire supply chain, there's integrity throughout the supply, entire supply chain now. There's the trust that verify, and the verify part comes in with certification. So every link along the supply chain has to be certified, verified. That means if you're a grower, expect to see at least once a year out on your fields uh, somebody who's out there walking the field, looking at soil residue, looking at your farm records, uh, looking to see what inputs you've you know purchased and applied. Um, and then, you know, you can go each length of the supply chain and, and you'll have a, an inspection point. That doesn't mean people don't try to game the system. What it means is that, that there is a process in place for trying to assure um, the integrity of the entire supply chain. And that, you know, sooner or later, you know, you might get away with it for a little while, but you're going to be found out if you're doing something fraudulent and then the penalties are, are quite high for that. So that's one thing is that if you're a consumer and you – are wondering if you can trust organic, well, you should have the same question about anything you eat, right? Can you trust the process? And the answer is a, a lot of our systems based on trust backed up by regulation and inspections and, and that sort of thing. 
So in that sense, organic is no different than anything else, uh, where you're reading the label in the grocery store and, and hoping, you know, that that, that that coffee that says it's Colombian coffee actually is Colombian coffee, or that the fish you buy is, you know, been inspected and is safe for you to eat. So um, I would say organic has that in common. Um, you know, beyond that, they're looking at some new, there's always innovators out there that are trying to t- tighten the supply chain up, you know, I've been involved in everything from discussions about blockchain, um, you know, the good old-fashioned uh, regulations, tightening regulations to make sure that that supply chain stays, uh, stays uh, uh, credible. So I think consumers can have confidence um, right now that, the, that, the, that the, the bad actors are being found out and, and kept out of the supply chain, and, and that effort is a continual one. That's kind of the answer I gave him. I'm like, what else can you do besides trust them? Are you going to go out to the farm yourself and check it out? I mean, I guess yeah. we just got to trust the process. Yeah. I mean, trust is a bit, I mean, I, everything I buy, I'm trusting that it's, it's going to be safe, you know, not just organic, that it's going to be safe and that it's going to perform as, as advertised. And so organic is part of that conversation. So uh, where do you think this organic market is going now? It's growing crazy fast, obviously, but do you think it can continue growing as fast as it is? Yeah, I mean, it's another good question, Jordan. I mean, I really wish I had a crystal ball, <laughs> although if I did have one, I might be, uh, I don't know, on a beach somewhere uh, with a winning lottery ticket. Um, we wouldn't so, be talking. What I can I get that all the time. When, when, you, when, you, when is corn going to be at a tie? I'm like, if I knew, I wouldn't be talking to you, man. Right, 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 exactly. Um, but the best you can do is, you know, you look for patterns, you look for trends. And the, as the saying goes, the trend is your friend. And the trend in organic has been um, not, a, not a fad, but just that, a trend. And since it was regulated about, little, you know, a little over 15 years ago by USDA, you can track it and see, you know, double-digit growth in terms of retail sales and a lot of times in terms of, you know, acreage growth as well. Um, and so, um, and, and you can see that in the, in the, you know, like I said, you can see that on both the production and the demand side. And it really is driven by consumer demand. I mean, to me, above all, organic is, along with others, by the way, I know we're talking about organic at this, um, in this session, but Think about all the things that a consumer now is asking about how their food is produced and all these labels you see popping up um, or even requirements by buyers that are not consumer-facing labels um, in terms of, you know, uh, soybeans that are grown in, in, on acres that hasn't been cut down from, you know, virgin rainforest or, um, you know, grass-fed beef or, or, or milk. Um, high oleic soybeans that carry a heart-healthy benefit. I mean, it's just you can see it all over the place about with consumers demanding more information about how their food was produced or, you know, they want some sort of performance, whether it's environmental or health performance, out of what they're, what they're eating. And so I think um, when it comes to long-term bets, I think it's a good thing to look at, you know, where the market seems to be heading. And it, I do think, as I often say, we're well into the information age, and if anyone thinks that less information is going to be demanded rather than more, you know, you know, then I would, I would take issue with that. I think, I think the, 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 the horse is out of the barn in terms of that. Uh, I think these IP markets where, you, where they come attached to some other um, trait are, are here to stay. And so the question is, are you gonna, is it something you want to take advantage of in your own business or is it something that you don't? Because there's room for everybody. I mean, there's definitely, you know, conventional ads, uh, IP ag, you know, some hybrid of the two. Um, there, there are all types of, and I think it's a healthy thing to have an ecosystem where all types of production and all types of consumption are are sustained. Yeah, it seems like I'm similar with thoughts there. I just wanted to pick your brain, see if I was accurate or not accurate. What was, uh, <laughs> but it sounds like we're both kind of on similar pages. I'm kind of the organic guy in the office with my dad he's not too into it but I went to school with everybody all into it so I've been around it a little more than him so he's always kind of yeah. picking my brain on the subject 
it's funny because I think, you know, there is somewhat, sometimes there's a bit of a generational divide. I was talking to a grower in, a, in my, my husband's home state of Kentucky, and it's funny because they, I mean, they were not organic farmers at all, but, I mean, he had figured out that, you know, there was a market kind of close by for some white corn, just conventional white corn, and he was ready to jump all over it. It was interesting to hear the dynamic between him and his dad. His dad was not convinced that this was the way to go. Uh, I think he finally they came to a compromise and they planted a few acres of it. But it was a, it was um, look I, I don't discount when you're working with family you've got a lot of people to keep happy and those are folks that you see all day every day. So it's uh, one thing to please the consumer and another thing to please you know dad or grandpa. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, let's let's uh, let's step away from your career a little bit. Let's stop talking about work and. Tell me a little bit from your personal perspective. What makes Kelly tick? Uh, what what keeps you grinding? What gets you up in the morning? Uh, caffeine. <laughs> no, I uh, uh, caffeine is fear. <laughs> Those two things together. I, uh, I joke, but um, but yeah, I mean it's it's. I think you know trying to do something new. This goes back to the sort of entrepreneurial drive. I mean, there's always the fear of failure. Like you hold those two opposite motivations, like in your head at the same time. You know, the idea that you know you could you could fail at any time, and the idea that you know that fear of failure can sometimes push you to be successful too. So, I actually I was talking to a grower. He was like, "How's it going?" I said, "Well, hopefully, you know." We'll be around next year, and, you know, who knows? And he's like, well, welcome to farming. Sounds a lot like my life. <laughs> so maybe there's something in, uh, you know, in common there. Um, so, you know, that, that sort of drive to do something uh, new, the fact that, you know, again, the restless persona, that keeps me going. Um, but I try to, you know, I, I, I try to keep it all in perspective. I mean, I've certainly worked for organizations where, you know, you just burn yourself and, and other people out by uh, by being trying to go 100 miles an hour every single day, day after day, you know, year after year, and you, you can't keep that up either. So, um, you know, we got, I think what keeps me going is I, I want to be sustainable in my own life too. I mean, I like sustainability when it comes to ag, but you know, individually, I'd like to be you know, I'd like to be doing this for a while. So I try to try to be aware of that. Tell me this, say we get done talking today and you go outside and find yourself a winning lottery ticket for $100 million. Do you, you still going to be doing this or you investing your money into the company? What what would you do? Yeah, I think, you know, I well, first of all, as an economist by training, I would definitely have to find a lottery ticket because I never buy them. I, I like the old saying that lotteries are a tax on people that are bad at math, but um, um but yeah, I mean, some sort of windfall. I mean, I'm doing. I feel very blessed to be doing what I'm doing, and and it's, I wouldn't choose anything else. So I think I'd, I'd probably, I don't know, I'd probably give a lot of that money away, and then you know invest some of it in you know in Mercaris and and uh, you know keep on doing what I'm doing. I will say this though, you know, I like one of the reasons I like you know some of these startup businesses, entrepreneurs that especially have some sort of social or economic justice component to it is that you've got to make it real. I mean, by that I mean at some point, you know, you got to do what every business does, which is bring in more money than you spend. Otherwise, it's not viable. It's not sustainable. And I think um, to change sort of the picture and, and make, you know, whether it's renewable energy or, quote, sustainable ag or affordable housing, I mean, you've got to make it, something that is returns value money to people and that's how you get more of it and so um, you know I'd probably invest a little of it but Mercari still has to you know stand on its own two feet rather than some sort of infusion or subsidy of cash from a windfall um, so I, I, I'd probably give a lot of it away and, and then maybe invest some of it but uh, keep really I keep grinding and doing what we're doing now is trying to make Mercari successful. So tell me this, how's the work-life balance treating you lately? What's some advice you could pass along to us about the subject? Oh, man. Uh, do you have kids, Jordan? No kids. My mom, my mom begs me for kids, but I don't have any. 
you know, you definitely don't need them to be happy, but I have to admit, I, I've had a lot of fun the last two years. I've got a two-year-old, two a, a two-year-old, and then this one will be born when the other one's two and a half. Uh, I don't know. I mean, work-life balance to me has always seemed like like a, a myth, I think. I, one of my mentors, I'm going to use her phrase, I seek joyful imbalance rather than balance at this point. So I'm always working on the joy part um, or the balance part, but it never, you know, life is always um, crazy. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I could say anything that already hasn't been said. It's, you know, everyone kind of finds their own what works for them. And, you know, I like having a really packed schedule. And I, I, keep, I tell myself every time I like, oh, why am I doing this? And I think, well, that has been my pattern all of my life is to just add responsibility until, you know, <laughs> as much as possible, my husband pointed out. So in some ways this is, you know, familiar or part of a, part of a pattern. Um, but like I said, I do try to be mindful. Mercara, as a company, has a culture where we try to make sure that people have time. And, and I know this is a cliche because everybody says that, but we really do um, have folks that have kids that are, you know, have cause, don't have kids but have causes to which they're very passionately devoted to or have both um, and still have, you know, demanding jobs. And we just try to make time for, for all of it. Um, and so far... I'd say we've gotten a good, you know, good company culture that supports that, and that's really important. Yeah, that's a great company culture. Nobody we got Nobody gets a prize at Mercaris for, for pulling an all-nighter. I mean, I'm at the age <laughs> now where if I pull an all-nighter, it means something went wrong, not not something went right. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's how it is here at our office. We're all about family, and if they got family issues, we say go take care of it. We'll see you tomorrow. We'll pick up the slack. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, let's talk about Macars a little bit, though. What? Tell me a little bit about the company and what inspired you to start it. Ah, uh, yes. So overall, and I'll just do my little plug here. You can go to Mercaris.com. and what Mercaris does two things. We are a market information service on the one hand, and we're also an online trading platform on the other for these identity preserved commodities, um, ag commodities. So. In our early days, that's meant things like organic corn, wheat, soybeans, you know, basically the row crops, as well as the non-GMO corn, non-GMO soybeans. Um, as we grow, it can mean all sorts of things. Like I said, I mentioned the high oleic stuff, the grass-fed, the certified palm oil. Um, there's a ton of stuff we can grow into. But the basic idea is that, you know, these markets, if you want to get into them, there's a mar- market lack of information. You know, there's no WASD for organic. Um, there's no, you know, there's not a good way to track cash prices other than maybe picking up the phone and calling around or, you know, coffee shop talk. And so Mercaris has stepped into that gap, and we have a whole slew of reports and analysis that analyze cash market prices and any of the macroeconomic fundamentals like supply, you know, production, you know, acreage, yield, that sort of thing, demand, um, seed demand, food demand, that sort of thing. And if you take all that together, it should help everyone along the supply chain from the grower all the way up to the, you know, the end user to make better, better decisions. And then on the trading side, it helps match buyers and sellers. So, again, you can pick up the phone and call around if you've got some grain to market, or you can list it online and let the buyers come to you or if the buyers are looking for something let the sellers come to you. And you get all the things that you would traditionally get at an exchange, price discovery, you know, um, you can see, yeah, well, price discovery is the primary thing that we're looking for, you know, for our customers. It's everything from, you know, uh, credit checks and, you know, assurances that the buyer is who they say they are, they're going to pay you on time, um, you know, a, a short guarantee of the quality specs, that sort of thing. So those two things combined are what Mercaris is. What, so what inspired you to start Mercaris? I think just noticing that these markets were developing, that they were niche markets, but they were very dynamic. There's, you know, price volatility and risk and everything you normally deal with, plus this uncertainty of not knowing, you know, an opaque market, and that brings transaction costs. So everything from broker's fees to, you know, just the, the cost of not having good, you know, good risk management tools, that is borne by the supply chain, and we can make the supply chain way more efficient with better information. So that's what inspired inspired me to start it. Um, 
the, the idea actually came more than a decade ago. Uh, if you remember, there was the, that mad cow scare, like back in the early mm-hmm. 2000s. I watched I watched live cattle um, markets tank overnight, and I wondered at the time, I was like, oh, I wonder what if you could hedge with an organic, you know, beef contract. And that's kind of what sparked the original idea. Um, even though it took me a long time to then, you know, execute on it, but that was that was maybe the first time I thought about I thought about these markets in that way. One more question I had for you. Let's, I want to jump back a little bit about you before we talk a little bit more about Macaris. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have a philosophy by which you live by? Oh, I think, you know, the sort of try to, the golden rule is as good as comprehensive. As if you do that, you won't get too far uh, astray. Um, so, I, you know, I, I try to, I try to see the best in everyone, and I, you know, try to, to try to live by that. Uh, treat everyone like I would want to be treated, and um, that's that's probably simple, maybe as simple as complex as it gets. What do you uh, What do you think the biggest misconception about you is that oh, people may think? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, sometimes I think working in organic. Or these sort of environmental markets, I think sometimes people get a little bit, get their backs up a little bit. I, you know, I, I like to come from things from a very practical point of view, and I think, you know, maybe the misconception is that uh, there's a little bit of evangelism or religion behind what I'm doing. But from my point of view, it's just it's all practical. It's there's an economic benefit, and there's a there's a there's an economic development opportunity um, that we could all be seizing on or many of us could be seizing on and I just want, you know, if that works I want people to be able to fairly and accurately assess if it's right for them. So there there you have it. Like we talked about the organics is I, I still think it's still growing and it's I think it's coming on a lot more quickly now through the past few years. It's going real quickly lately. I just want to know what would keep someone else from entering the space that you just started with Macaris. How do you how do you guys keep a competitive advantage over there? Well, I mean the first thing is what we're doing is really hard. It's funny, when I first started pitching Mercaris, people were like, Oh, are you afraid someone's gonna take the idea? And I was like, Yes, I hope someone takes it and I go work for them because that would be sure easier than starting something new. <laughs> um, so we've always been very open and transparent about what we're doing and why. Um, it's not easy what we're doing. It's taken a lot of time to get to, I mean, we're almost five years old now, and we're just now getting to the point where I think the uh, Mercaris as a brand is trusted and, and, and people are using our information in a, in a serious way. Um, so some of it is just like, why reinvent the wheel? You know, we, we like to partner with folks in that way. You know, hey, uh, we just, for example, signed a partnership with uh, DTN to carry our cash data on their ProfitX platform. Well, I think part of the reason is, you know, with your DTN, like, why would you want to redo that yourself? You've got customers asking for it. You know, just work with Mercaris, and it's kind of a win-win. Um, so that's kind of what we, you know, we, we love partnering with any, anyone who wants to do a, some sort of joint project. We'll, you know, we'll entertain it. And, um, and that, I think, you know, keeps us uh, fresh and and gives us, you know, new perspectives, and hopefully get, they get some value out of it. And so that's that's one way that we um, we keep a competitive advantage. So, uh, but I think there's room for more. I mean, sure, you know, that I know I know of other startups that are doing some some grain marketing, not necessarily focused on organic, but certainly organic, you know, becomes part of it. And um, I think there's, you know, the space is growing and interesting enough that there's room for you know several players. I think. Yeah, that was uh, something I had questions about. Me and my dad were talking. We we're just like, wow, I wonder, wonder how they're gonna adjust once some more people get into the space a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But uh, what's uh, so you guys made a five five thousand soybean sale? What is it? Just under twenty eight dollars. Mhm. Mhm. Okay. So what? That's that's crazy. That's like three times the price of what regular soybeans are going for. What's yeah. um, what's keeping farmers from growing more organic crops? 
Yeah, I mean, you're right. If you just look at those numbers, you think, well, why isn't everybody doing this? Um, if you can get that much money, uh, forget beans in the teens. I mean, we're, we're talking beans in the 20s. Uh, so there's a reason. And, and that, that so, so far, if you look at overall the big three, or, well, you can look at any of the row crops, but less than, less than 2% is, um, is grown organically. I think wheat has the highest concentration, and like 1.6% of all wheat grown in the U.S. is organic. So here's the reason. There are many. Um, one is that it's hard. I mean, it takes three years of transition before you can even get that organic premium. So for three years, you're, you're employing organic practices. You're probably seeing some yield drag. Um, you're selling it only for a conventional, um, a conventional price. You're using more labor, and, you know, hey, labor is hard to come by uh, these days. So, you know, if you've got a, an organic operation, it's, um, you can't just, you know, spray Roundup or Dicamba or anything. You've got to have people out there working those fields, and that, you know, it takes labor. And so that, and it's just, it's just a different method of farm management. Um, and so that's a, that's a big barrier to entry, I think, for a lot of growers. There's a cultural element. I mean, I know farmers who have just been ridiculed by their neighbors. You know, like, why would you do that? Or like you talked about your family or your landlord. I mean, again, three years commitment means if you're just, if you're renting fields and you don't know if you're going to be farming that ground next year, you know, why would you embark on organic um, when you could, you know, you may not even have that same piece of land. So you got to get cooperation from a bunch of people in order to, to do that. If you're an older grower, we're looking at the average age of a grower, uh, you know, you're mid-60s, investing three years into transitioning might not seem like a good idea at your stage in the career. So all those are, all those are reasons why people don't necessarily grow organic. On the marketing side, um, and then, you know, different regions have different challenges. So, you know, how do you manage weeds and pests if you're in the there's a reason I think that a lot of organic grain growers are in the Midwest and Northeast where you've got you know, colder winters that will help you out maybe with ki killing off some pests and diseases versus the deep south. Um, so that's all that stuff on the agronomic side is part of the reason. And then on the marketing side, it's also work. You know, you're, it's on one hand it's nice because demand is growing and you're kind of the bell of the ball. Buyers definitely want, want to get to know you. But the tough side is, you've got to really do some planning. So you can't just take your brain to the elevator 20 miles up the road because it's probably not certified organic. Um, you've got to figure out, you know, make sure that, that you can haul it someplace uh, or, or get it sold in a way that doesn't, the freight doesn't eat up all the, all the profit you're expecting to make. And so it, it requires a lot more homework uh, up front on how you're going to market that grain. Mercars tries to help with that. But in general, you know, it's, it's definitely something that you got to sit down and plan rather than just plant and hope for the best. So all those things combined mean it's not, it's definitely not the path of least resistance. I mean, you got to be really intentional, and that puts off, I think, a lot of growers. So. Uh, on the flip side, say you are growing organics, what mm -hmm. what's the ROI um, on working with Macaris? Yeah, so um, a couple things. One is um, on the, uh, just on the grain marketing side, we charge about um, five cents per bushel uh, that's sold on our platform. So it doesn't cost anything to list it. And um, when you sell it, that's when we charge a, a fee. Now, for the conventional growers listening, that's going to sound like a lot because traditional grain, we're not a broker, but traditional grain brokers will charge about a penny a bushel. Um, and so that sounds higher. However, if you look at organic brokers right now, a lot of them are charging something in the range of 50 cents and up a bushel. So we think um, we have succeeded in lowering transaction fees, which just, you know, helps um, just if you just do the numbers. And the other thing is it just helps meet, meet buyers. So instead of having your time is money, so instead of having to pick up the phone and call a half a dozen people and, you know, play phone tag, you just list it online and a half a dozen people come to you. And so that's the other advantage is, you know, it, it will help with time management. Um, on the data side, we know of growers that are just are using our information to make smart decisions on contracting. So even if they don't put anything on our platform, but they can look at the Mercaris, you know, weekly reports that come out or biweekly or whatever suits their needs and say, ah, this is where I'd like to start negotiating with, uh, with the buyer or this is where I'm trying to show my banker, 
you know, what, um, what type of return or what type of revenue I'm, I'm going to get, and I've got some objective information to show, to show him or her so that I can, you know, get some better terms for, for credit. Um, or, you know, I'm planning my crop rotation, you know, another feature of organics. You can't just grow corn beans uh, every year. You've got to do a rotation, you know, corn beans, you know, alfalfa, rye. And so I can plug in some numbers to show overall what my, you know, farm management plan is. All of those are ways that farmers and others can derive value out of having some objective information. Sounds like it's worth the investment if you're pulling in close to $28 a bushel on some soybeans. I would imagine you yeah. can get some people over there doing some stuff. Uh, how, do you, how do you see Macaras really changing the future of agriculture, say, in the next uh, three to five years? Just go a little yeah. more short term. Well, so what I'd like to be able to say about Mercars is that we are the most comprehensive, sophisticated set of uh, data and information for, for, you know, for IP crops. And the way that changes things is I think, you know, a decision to, to grow these crops or to, if you're on the buy side, to buy and consume these crops is a complex decision. I mean, we don't pretend to solve everything. There is a big agronomy piece. You know, there's a big consumer education piece. There's a big, you know, there's a big public policy piece. None of those are things we work on. We are laser focused on the market, markets piece. And so we want to make sure that as a, in terms of a barrier, in terms of an impediment, or in terms of a source of, of you know, increased profits or efficiency, and Mercaris is the, is the place, you know, becomes known as the, as the experts in helping, you know, helping you derive those market efficiencies. So that's, that's I think, how we change, you know, change uh, IP ag. Definitely sounds like you're making some uh, big waves now, and I'm sure you'll have more ideas in the future the way our conversation's gone. But uh, before we wrap things up, I would just love for you to tell our listeners um, one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on Kelly James. Ah, uh, yeah. So. <laughs> I have a funny thing about it, but, you know, when I first started, even now, people are really willing to give advice. Um, and, I, and I think the, one of the best, best advice I got was, like, just be discerning in who you take advice from because, you know, talk is cheap and, um, you know, I always listen and, and nod politely, and, uh, but there's some advice I take way more seriously than, than others advice. Um, and so I try to listen to people who have done it before, um, people who have your own best interest at heart, because I, I learned not everybody does. And so I think the best advice I have is, is to be discerning about the advice you, you know, that you take and incorporate. Um, and that has helped me out a lot. One last question I got for you. I'm doing some research on some more questions I could ask people. Um, thought-provoking for them as well as maybe get a little more out of it for the listeners. One I found was uh, finish this sentence for me. Kelly James is... Oh, <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I would just say that, you know, Kelly James is a lifelong student. You know, I'm looking to learn from... Uh, there's always someone out there who who has got an interesting perspective, sometimes someone who makes you uncomfortable. And I like, I like talking to those folks. So um, it's, it's gotten me this far, but I think being comfortable with being uncomfortable, being comfortable with having new conversations, you know, learning about new perspectives, I think that's, so you know, I would say Kelly James, I'm curious. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always curious and fascinated by uh, people out, you know, people who are who've done something I've never done or lived a reality I haven't lived, and I hope I, I hope I hold on to that. That's a good answer. That's uh, one of the main reasons I'm doing these podcasts now. Is, I mean, I want to give back to the listeners and give them the information I'm getting on this call, but I'm curious as well. I want to be on the forefront of what you're learning, help me learn. And, I think those are all uh, really good tools. But uh, I think that's all we got for today on our session with Farm Tank. I uh, really thank you for being on the show. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners learned a lot. Also, I 
encourage everybody to go to Macarus.com and subscribe to the Macarus letter. Uh, did you tell everyone about the organic letter you send out weekly, Any? Yeah, so um, a couple things that you can do is, um, you know, go to the website or follow us on Twitter, at Mercaris. And if you're a grower, um, for, for farmers only, if you go to mercaris.com slash farmers, you can get a free weekly, uh, bi-weekly report on cash markets. Um, and we try to, you know, there, it's a basic report. There's certainly more, you know, heavy-duty analysis that is done, but we we never want to discourage growers from getting more information. So that's a free service we offer, and I'd encourage you to take advantage of that. Please, please do it if you're a farmer only, though. We, we're not. We um, we do try to, you know, kind of use the honor system to get people on. And then um, for everyone else, you know, there's a range of services and, and products, you know, from the uh, small, medium, to large. So you can check all that out on our on our website. So I would just love if people would take a moment and visit our website and give us some feedback about what you see there. There's a chat bot that will pop up, and you can always dialogue with one of us uh, right there online, real time. I encourage everyone as well. Uh, just like we're on the forefront over here at the Van Trump Report with corn, beans, and wheat, I definitely thank McCars and Kelly are on the forefront pushing great information on the organic side. But I appreciate you being on here and taking the time to talk with me today. I think that's all we got. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate the time, and I look forward to uh, getting to talk with you again soon. Sounds good. We'll uh, stay in touch. I'll see you later. All right. Take care.